0: Story. It is
1: not Spine's podcast. What is it? It's Armchair Apocrypha, and you damn well know it, Andrew.
0: <laughs> armchair Apocrypha, that's right. This is the um, the podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. mm mm-hmm. um, Yeah. We have some uh, some special announcements about what we're going to do. Yes! Doing. Um, do
1: tell, Andrew.
0: So, uh, some of you know, well, if you've been listening to the show, you know, uh, I quit my job a couple weeks ago, so yes. I... Um, I've been using my time very productively. I've been writing a lot. So uh, we're getting The The Violet Ear, which is going to be our first uh, fully scripted Mm -hmm. fiction podcast. Yes, Um, which I
1: also enjoy. (laughs)
0: Um, And she hasn't even heard the second episode yet.
1: No. (laughs) No. No.
0: I also started a Facebook page, so if you're on Facebook... So
1: now we're legit. Yeah,
0: if you're on Facebook... Unless you're, you're on Facebook. <laughs> I mean, I know a lot of people who aren't on Facebook. Yeah, it's very so. true. I was about to say, I'm pretty Apparently, sure a lot
1: of friends have like deactivated yeah. <laughs> or whatever you do to get off of it.
0: Um, so I don't even Facebook, really go online. <laughs> I know. It's so hard communicating with all of these people because most of them aren't on Facebook. So if... I've got to talk to Mary or Katie mm-hmm. or Cameron, and I need to send them something. I have to either do it through email or through <laughs> Signal Chat. And yeah. It's like, come on, guys, get on Facebook so I can send you stuff. Um, yeah, it's difficult. And then Cameron's on Twitter, but Rachel's not on Twitter. No. So if I want to send her, Rachel something on Twitter, I have to screenshot it and then send, <laughs> send it, it, it to her. <laughs> really difficult it's
1: great times yeah
0: um so if you're on facebook go ahead and like our page that's uh uh absent activism arts Mm -hmm. um we'll be going live on tuesday uh may 1st so
1: many many months after this has been released
0: many many months before this episode is released (laughs) um i'm probably gonna put up a, a special uh like Minute announcement on the uh, cool the podcast yeah. feed too, so everybody knows as soon as it goes Surprise. live. Yeah. Surprise! Uh, I also started Patreon, and mm-hmm. Mary and I have been working on that. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you feel like supporting us and supporting our arts, go ahead and uh, uh, give us our money.
1: Booze. <laughs> <laughs> no, our arts.
0: The uh, support the arts. <laughs> the bottom. Uh, bottom donation is uh, absinthe patrons mm-hmm. and that is people who are supporting our booze habits mm-hmm. um, so you'd be buying us beer and wine and um, that's
2: about the um,
1: only alcohol beverages like, I drink <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. on a regular not like there's nothing much else in my house <laughs> is what I'm saying
0: um yeah, alcohol wise, you did give me a bottle of champagne the last time I was here, so because I
1: don't drink champagne, Oh. Um, gives me a huge headache. Yeah, I saw uh, those two tiny ones. That I've been in there for literally three years. Yeah. I keep forgetting that I have them.
0: Yeah, you might just want to toss them. I think I. W- I think but when I when
1: we move, I will. Uh, those are going. They are not coming with me. Right,
0: right. <laughs>
1: it's me
0: bad. Um yeah there's uh the bottom tier is just uh two dollars and you get access to our show notes so mm-hmm. we'll, uh, we'll just send those out um to anybody who gives us two dollars um and then the top is 100 i'm not expecting too many hundred dollar subscribers but if you're feeling generous go ahead and send us money um and then that'll get you a bundle deal of everything that we're offering uh, yeah. copies of my novels signs um access to the violet ear a
1: hug when we finally meet in person
0: (laughs) (laughs) a hug if we ever meet in person um all that stuff so many things yeah uh also if you give us five dollars you can uh listen to these episodes as they're recorded um and you can make requests about what you want to hear on the show i love that part Um, so yeah, if you feel like supporting us, go ahead and do that. Because I feel like Um, I
1: would go into more research (laughs) if I was like, this person wants to hear all about this.
0: Yeah, because we're just doing this for free right now, so... (laughs) I was going to say for fun, but yes, that's true. (laughs) I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, go ahead and, uh, check out those things. If you feel Mm -hmm. generous, go ahead and subscribe. If you don't, um, go ahead and, uh... Uh, just let us know that you appreciate us um, and like the page to keep up with all the fun stuff we're doing. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, if you want to patronize us, uh, if you want to patronize give us your us. patronage <laughs> if you want to give us your patronage and you don't want to uh, do Patreon, I also have a bunch of money apps on my phone, so just send us an email and <laughs> we'll be happy to take your donations for one time. Cheers. Cheers to that. Cheers, listeners. <laughs> Delicious. Yeah. Uh, do you want to get into today's episode?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Awesome. Uh, so, this will be part two of last week's episode. Um, I'll be talking about Voltrain Declare.
1: Voltaire! Um, we'll <laughs> sorry.
0: Not Voltron. Uh, <laughs> Voltaire. Um, so, last week I talked about her life and kind of like her history. Mm-hmm. Um, she was raised in a convent because her parents thought it would be the best education for her, she became kind of a radical as she entered adulthood yeah um, she started off uh, with the free thought movement which was anti-clerical um, I don't really like this version of Voltaire when she's with the free thought movement uh, mostly because I think that if she were alive today she would be one of those people that was radicalized by Reddit um, but Uh, Her argument is basically that people should believe in the evidence of the world um, Before any metaphorical or metaphysical significance They should be able to like look around them and learn and study from the world as it is not as we want it to be Yeah Um, She says that her basic argument is that if people want to believe in God they can like I'm not saying you shouldn't believe in God uh but the dogma of the church and its dominance in Western society, all of that stuff has to end. Gotcha. hmm Um she grew from the free thought movement into an anti marriage activist. Um she compared uh marriage uh, to sex slavery. Ooh. Um One of her essays is literally titled Sex (laughs) Slavery.
1: Okay. It wasn't just like, yeah, gotcha. Um, She literally said
0: it. (laughs) Yes. Uh, She literally said that marriage is like sex slavery, that um, the church, it does it for metaphorical moral reasons, like Mm -hmm. the whole living in sin thing.
2: Yeah.
0: uh, While the quote-unquote enlightened of, of society uh, usually, push marriage as some sort of social order. Like, if there's not a marriage between people, yeah. society will collapse. Uh, um, but she's right. <laughs> like, naturally, if we just abolish marriage, then society <laughs> will collapse. It's just going to collapse. Like, what? What are we doing if we're not getting married? <laughs> um,
1: and then divorce, and then married again, and exactly. then divorce, and married. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: three times is the charm. <laughs> <laughs> um. If you can't have a Vegas wedding, like then married by the po- Elvis, Yeah. what's the point? Yeah,
1: that's the <laughs> ultimate dream. Um,
0: again, she says that, like, if you want to get married, like, that's one thing, but we should definitely stop pushing this as an ideal for all people. Yeah. Um, another one of her essays is titled, They Who Marry Do Ill. Okay. Um, in it, she says that marriage shouldn't be a permanent and legal v- venture. Uh, men and women should arrange their lives that they are always free beings first and foremost.
1: Free being what?
0: Free beings first oh, and foremost. Oh, free beings yeah.
2: first and foremost.
0: So you should always like make sure that you're free of any yeah obligations or like anything that could keep you from being a free person. Yeah. Um, first and foremost you should be a person and then if you want to get married
2: go for it yeah
0: get married but uh society needs to stop pushing this you have to grow up get married white picket fence thing um in 1891 she has an essay called the economic relations of sex Um, in it she says there's a class of economic reformers called anarchists who contend with the that, with opportunity to exploit nature thrown free of the human race, the hours of labor would be so reduced as to enable one to produce sufficient to satisfy all his needs by three hours' works a day. So, if we just reduce the workday down to three hours a day, we can employ everybody, and we can still produce enough to keep the world running. Gotcha. Um, this, with our present machi- machinery, the possibilities of further reduction being left to further developments. So in the future, we could reduce it even more. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine, like, working one hour a day? No. <laughs> Just go in, do your job for one hour a day, and then go home.
2: No. Yeah.
0: So, um... The anarchists also contend that such freedom must necessarily result in constant labor man, um, thus securing the laborer against the present nightmare of involuntary idleness.
1: Involuntary idleness.
0: Exactly. So I'm not employed right now, but I still find things to do. I still yeah. write. I still yeah. like, go out with people. I'm still volunteering with political campaigns mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So if we reduce the work hours down to three hours a day, people would still work. They would just not do it for, you know, in order to live. Yeah. So... Um, under such conditions, bearing in mind that the ever-increasing displacement of physical strength by machinery keeps reducing the physical burden of productive labor, women's economic independence becomes a real-realizable ideal, and the whole matter of sex association changes. So, <laughs> as of, like, her writing this, she says, we can reduce the workload down to three hours a day,
2: yeah.
0: and we have machinery... That can do the work for people. Yeah. So, you know, given that, men and women, they should be treated as equals. Like, men can't do. Yes. Sorry. Men can't do more work than women anymore. Like, all it takes is one machine to do the work mm-hmm. of 500 men and 500 women. Yeah. Um, so, given that, women should be equal in society.
2: Is she sure about that? <laughs>
0: I mean, I think so, but <laughs> I'm biased. You're radical, though. So. <laughs> <Bless me. laughs> so she says that given these facts, when women comprehend her independence, marriage will no longer be a matter of, quote-unquote, protection and support. Uh, this is in response to Professor Cope, who had uh, written something about marriage and the economics of the sexist. Um, she says that it will become a matter of mutual cooperation. Marriage will uh, be based in um, higher issues than quote unquote the sale of motherhood and demanding the same standards as men for women. Cool. Mm -hmm. So that's her proto feminism coming out. Love it. I want more of it. (laughs) You can kind of see how she's evolving her arguments over time because first she's just like, we need to start breaking down these institutions that hold so much dominance over us. And then as she goes further, she's like, we need to start breaking down everything. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Why
2: stop
1: here? Yeah.
0: Uh, I'm not entirely sure when this one is. It's sometime between uh, 1891 and 1897. She writes A Glance at Communism. Um, She was what they refer to as an individualist anarchist. Or um, in one of the debates that I listened to, she was called a capitalist anarchist. What? Which is, it sounds weird. Yeah. Um, Explain it to me. <laughs> uh, the difference that she saw between communism and anarchism was that communism has to have some kind of governing body for yeah. everybody in order to achieve equality, in order to <laughs> achieve like um, an equitable playing field she believed that if we just, like, revolted and took the means of productions from the rich people and gave it to all of the workers. So let's say um, one of the examples she uses is a farmer. I'm going to go with, like, uh, a barista. Mm -hmm. What if instead of, like, Starbucks or Heine Brothers or um, one of these big national chains owning all of the equipment that is used to make a cappuccino, everybody had access to that gotcha mm-hmm. um, so she says that people would um, divide themselves they would still divide themselves into like different career paths they would just do it for themselves um, and so a barista who was particularly good at making cappuccinos she would have the things that she needs um, in order to make a, a
2: cappuccino
0: make a cappuccino and then she could like sell her labor to whoever she wanted to. Um, in relation to other people
2: yeah
0: Um, so instead of it being these big corporations it would now be reduced down to a single one person yeah Um, so in a glance at communism she distances herself from Emma Goldman who was her contemporary she says uh, when everyone has access to the means of production competition will be free when competition is free workers will be free to reap the the fruits of their labor when workers are able to here's our capitalism part huh? Yeah. When workers are able to reap the fruits of their labor, the standards of living for, uh, for everyone will go up. I saw today, I don't know if this is true, but time had said that American workers currently produce like $68 of wealth. I every saw hour. that somewhere. Yeah. So, Someone's like, where is it going? <laughs> so if you go to work and you produce $68 worth of wealth and you're only getting paid $7, then obviously that money that you're producing is going somewhere and usually it's going to your boss your boss's boss or your boss's boss's, boss's boss and so yeah. up the, the food chain
1: and into savings <laughs> and endowments um
0: so she says that communism uh is authoritarian authoritarian uh here meaning like there has to be somebody in control of the processes mm-hmm. She says that authoritarians would rather create a bureaucracy to enforce standards and practices that can be biased or manipulated. And so if you have any kind of governing system over coffee makers, uh, eventually you're going to have somebody who favors this one business, this one person over any other business. Mm -hmm. um, And then that's how things get out out of whack. So she says that communities should make and enforce their own regulation, like at the local level. So, like, a neighborhood should know this person can make good coffee, this person poisons their coffee. (laughs) So don't buy coffee from this person. Right. Um, In this essay, she also denies material determinism, which is a little bit more um, abstract, but uh, if you've read uh, Marx, he has this idea of uh, materialism is this constantly involving... battle between the upper and the lower class Mm -hmm. Uh, the ruling class necessarily oppresses the lower class the lower class um, comes into conflict with the upper class Uh, it's a thesis antithesis and then they clash the ruling system collapses and something else takes its place he called it uh, Well, he he lays out um, agrarian society meets feudalism Mm -hmm. Um, feudalism creates uh, mercantilism, mercantilism creates capitalism, and so on and so forth.
1: Snowball, snowball, snowball. Exactly,
0: yeah. It's cause and effect. And he based this off of uh, Hegel's um, shit. I used to know this. You got it. (laughs) I don't have it. Uh, Phenomenology of the Spirit, I think. Um... He based it off of Hegel's, uh, idea of, uh, phenomenology. Okay. Um, so she says that, uh, people do emerge from their material conditions, um, or they are crushed under them, uh, so you can't consider material conditions the sole arbiter of future conditions. Mm -hmm. So people can basically create their own destiny despite what their material conditions are. Got it. Um... So we can look at someone like President Obama, who was a uh, biracial youngster born and raised in Hawaii by a single mother. He became president.
1: Allegedly.
0: i <laughs> <So Okay. laughs> Have you started watching InfoWars since I last saw <laughs> <time? laughs> you? It's it?
1: my number one podcast. <laughs> my God.
0: We do not endorse uh, InfoWars here on the show. Oh, fuck no. <laughs> God.
1: I can't even joke about that. Right.
0: Just in case you are curious. That's not, not
1: even like, ugh. My blood boils <laughs> when I think about him.
0: Um, so, and... So, yes.
1: President Obama. Right. Becoming president.
0: Right. So, that's an example of someone, like, transcending their material mm-hmm. c- conditions. Gotcha. Um, but she says that, like, material conditions do matter. It's just they're not the sole arbiter yeah. of what somebody becomes or what they mm-hmm. don't become. Um, so, you might be, like born rich and then be crushed by circumstances yeah. or by whatever. And you can be born poor and raised mm-hmm. by a single mother and become one of the most powerful people in the, the uh, world. world. Yeah. Yeah. In, um, 1897, she, uh, publishes why I'm an, why I am an anarchist. Um, have you read it? I have read it. Uh, She goes about defining uh, what anarchism is, Um, she calls it a form of Protestantism. Mm -hmm. Um, She says uh, the inherents of anarchism essentially believe that uh, external authority must disappear or be replaced by self-control, but variously divided on our conception of a form of a future society. So, if you ask 10 anarchists what they believe future society is going to look like, you'll probably get about 15, 20 different answers.
2: <laughs> That's a good joke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you think I'm joking. <laughs> um, but they all believe that, like, people should be free of these yeah. conditions that crush them. They should be free of oppression. They should be uh, a of There's a central theme. There's a central theme. They just don't know what the future is going to look like. Um,
1: Welcome... I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I'm so sorry.
0: Welcome to leftism.
1: I almost said welcome to reality, but I was just like, that's not really what I wanted to say. And then I couldn't figure out what I wanted to say. So I just thought I would just trail off. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, then she lays out like a, uh, The way that she sets it up is that she started thinking about it one day and she drew a bunch of conclusions. I'm sure that's just how she structured it. Yeah. I don't think that she actually sat down one day and just started thinking of all these things. Yeah. Um, Today's
1: the day. (laughs) (laughs) Get my favorite pen out.
0: (laughs) Today's the day that I formulate my my view of the world. Yeah. Um, But she lays out all the things that she was thinking through. Uh, The first one is there should be no land rights. People should become parts of the community that they manage and work alongside. Nobody should own land.
2: Okay. (laughs) Trying to wrap
1: my head around that one. Keep going. (laughs)
0: Um, She says uh, money is fake. It shouldn't exist. Uh, We produce more than we need already. So what is produced should be used as needed and stored until someone else needs it.
1: Like talking about trading chickens for a cow.
0: Uh, kind of more more along the lines of like if you farm the land and you make uh so much corn that it can feed the entire neighborhood, then you just put that corn like in a a storage shed, and For then people as can get. people need it, they can get it. And then if you need shoes, you go to the local cobbler. The cobbler makes the shoes that you need. Um, you take the shoes, you give them corn. It's a yeah. mutually beneficial relationship. But the idea is that like everything should be free.
1: I get yeah, yeah. and now I get that part.
0: Um, as to the question of exchange and money, it is so exceedingly bewildering, so impossible of settlement among the professors themselves, as to the nature of value and the representation of value, and the unit of value and the numberless multiplications and divisions of the subject, that the best thing ordinary working men and women could do was to organize their industry so as to get rid of money altogether.
2: Bitcoin. I'm <laughs>
0: <starting>. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, uh, she says that machinery should be owned communally. So, like, going back to our...
1: Like, there's a sewing shop, and it's, like, open doors. If yeah. you need to go in, you go in and use the sewing machine, and then you leave it there for someone else to use. Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, one of my friends uh, in DSA, he talks about, like, a maker space, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a communal maker space, and it has a sewing machine. So if you need to go sew something, you just go in, use the sewing machine, and then just leave it for somebody else to, to use. Um, And then like communal kitchens, so you store all your food in the communal kitchen. You need to cook something, you come to the communal kitchen, you use what you need, and then you restore whatever you have. Yeah. Um, So machinery should be communally owned, like spaces should be communally owned, there are no land rights, there's no money, so just come and use what you need. Um, As to the question of shipping and globalism, um, she tells an an anecdote about um, uh, shoes made in Philadelphia which are shipped to the um, the shipping station in Chicago mm-hmm. and then sent back to Philadelphia, Philadelphia for somebody who had ordered them um, which we can all see in like Amazon. Yeah. She says that like we don't need all that no. somebody in your community will make shoes and then you can just go to them and buy the shoes directly from them you don't need to order your shoes from some Amazon. kind of shipper <laughs> of course you didn't have Amazon but
1: it wasn't there back <laughs> in 1891
0: no no not, not back then oh yeah I
1: think they started in 1893 you're right <laughs> <laughs> Um, siri am i right <laughs> or no it's alexa or amazon my bad my bad
0: um siri is the iphone iphone yeah. yeah um she's she says like uh people in london have butter imported from paris because it's fancier mm-hmm. people in paris have butter imported from london because it's, it's different it's different you don't need that that's just it's it's butter it's butter right Uh, Yeah, but the butter in Paris, (laughs) though, Andrew, I gotta
2: tell you
1: about it. (laughs) I've never been.
0: So, uh But I did tell
1: you, sorry, side note. What's
0: that?
1: Amy, you know, our lovely friend Amy who's here not too long ago. Um she she may have said it on the podcast, I can't remember, but when she was in Paris, she's been there like twice now, Mm -hmm. I think. She says it's cheaper to buy wine than water there.
0: Yeah.
1: Like so much cheaper. So you just
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like a euro to buy a bottle of wine and then like a euro fifty to buy a bottle of water.
2: Oh my gosh.
0: It's like a, a big difference.
2: But Yeah.
1: I don't know. I thought
0: of that. <laughs> um, so following up with this, she says like without money, without land, without global shipping and with the machinery communally owned, women would be equals workers. Mm-hmm. Going back to her previous yeah. feminism. Yeah. Um, argument um she asks so what about crime without like uh, without like land ownership, without all of these things happening what are we going to do with criminals she says you know the biggest cause of crime is property so if private property abolished crime would decrease significantly if people can just go to a communally owned kitchen and take the food that they need they're not going to be like knocking over a convenience store in order to get the food that they need yeah um, allowing property to be, to be eradicated, both in practice and in spirit, no crimes are left, but such as are the acts of, men, of the mentally sick. Cases of atavism, which might well be expected occasionally for centuries to come, as a result of all the repression poor humanity experienced for these thousands of years. Um, and, it, and enlightened people, people living in something like sane, healthy conditions, would consider these criminals as subjects of scientific study and treatment. They would not retaliate and exhibit themselves as more brutal than the criminal, as is the custom today, but would use all gently.
1: Hmm. Are guns a lot in this area?
2: No.
0: Yeah. Nice. Um. I don't know if she ever like put forward. Yeah, a I think she's like. I think
1: people know.
0: But I'm pretty sure. That Actually, who
1: was 1891. Who knows? Yeah.
0: But I'm pretty sure that I don't any, think
1: that was the hot topic, but an issue <laughs> of the day, to be honest.
0: Well, you've got to remember that that was back when guns were still, like, you had to load them up by hand. Yes, it, took, it took fucking took forever. Like, ten minutes to load a single a single shell, so... Let um, me get my gun
1: pelleter out.
0: I'm sure... Well, I'm, I think the wall
1: rose <laughs> there by then, but still... That was still, like, a, a gun that was used, though. Right.
0: I'm sure she wasn't dealing with AK-15s and 47s and all that stuff. And the 52s and yeah. whatever else, yeah. Um... Then she might have had something to say about it. So she ends here very close to where she began uh, with her earlier stuff, where she says that education be handled by the community and according to the world that they inhabit. So instead of having, like, big colleges where you go off and you have to understand all of these different things about the world, you should just have, like, communal education where you find out Um, what kind of plants are in the area, what kind of trees are in the area, what medicines work, things like that. Like, what does your individual community need to know and then go from there?
1: So did she ever see people, like, leaving their community?
0: I'm sure she did, yeah. Remember, she was carted off from uh, Michigan to Canada when she was, like, 12 years old. Lucky But I think that... For her, it's more of a, a.
1: Being invested in your community and knowing yeah. what you can give back to your community of yeah. people.
0: And like, if you decide that you don't want to live in um, Louisville anymore mm-hmm. and you want to go to Seattle, then you pack up your stuff, like your personal belongings, you go to Seattle, you put on your down. stick
1: and handkerchief, yeah. just walk out. <laughs> <laughs> <You> <laughs> Over say- shoulder. <laughs>
0: You set down your, your stuff wherever you're working, wherever you're living at the time. And you say, and this then, is my trade? Yeah, this is my my place. Uh, I want to be part of your community. And then you, like, become part of the community. Okay. Um, Let's see. Oh,
1: I'm sorry. Oh, my gosh, I thought I muted it.
0: I thought you did, too.
1: I did. I swear I did.
0: Um... So in 1912, uh, she has The Making of an Anarchist, where she talks about uh, meeting uh, Murray Bookchin, who was a mutualist. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a whole lot of her writing uh, that I could find between 1897 and 1912, but she did go under, undergo like a lot of transformations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've already talked about her relationship with Emma Goldman. Yeah, um, Emma Goldman, during this time, got in trouble uh, she made a statement to a workers' council where she said, um, "Ask for work, if they don't give you work, ask for bread. if they don't ask or if they don't give you bread, take bread." Uh, and there was an FBI agent in the the um, meeting the meeting who, after the meeting, said that she had said, Take bread by force." And so she was arrested and accused of inciting a riot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, Voltaireine comes to her defense. She says, "You know, I didn't hear her say this, yeah. but I understand where she's coming from. If you you ask somebody for work and they don't want to give you work, um, and you ask them for like bread and they don't want to give you bread, then by definition, the only choice you have in order to survive to take is bread. to take the bread." Um, and so she lays out that uh, that argument in defense of Emma Goldman um here she lays out uh the case for mutualism and uh she calls herself an anarchist simply now she's not an individualist anarchist she's just an anarchist uh because she doesn't think that anarchy should be or can be encapsulated in one ideology
2: okay
0: um hence
1: why you have 15 different answers
0: exactly yeah yeah um and so she she lays out communist anarchism and anarcho-communism and individualist anarchism Um, and she says my personal conviction is that both communism and anarchism as well as uh, many other intermediations would in the absence of government be tried in various localities according to the instincts and material conditions of the people but that well-founded uh, objection may be offered to both. So if you, if you, uh, overmine, if you undermine capitalism, if you overthrow all these systems of oppression, then you're going to have communities where there are communist communities, where there's people who work lying together and mm-hmm. then share all that they own. And there's going to be anarchist communities where there are people who each choose a certain career path. And then trade amongst themselves. And then there's going to be mutualism, where uh, there's a little bit of a mixture of both. And So she says, therefore, I can't label myself any one type of anarchism, uh, any one type of anarchist anymore, because I think that they'll all be tried once uh, the the chains of capitalism have been lifted. Okay. Uh, and finally, she uh, she has a, a great little quote that i'm just going to read uh, to leave us off Um, she says that good-natured satirists often remark that the best way to cure an anarchist is to give him a fortune uh substituting corrupt for cure i would subscribe to this and believe in myself to be no better than the rest of mortals i earnestly hope that as so far as it has been my lot to work and work hard and for no fortune so i may continue to the end for let me keep the integrity of my soul with all the limitations of my material conditions, rather than become the spineless and idealist creature of material needs. My reward is that I live with the young. I keep step with my comrades. I shall die in the harness with my face to the east, the east and the light.
1: That's very poetic.
0: And then shortly after that, she died. Ah,
1: It's like she knew. <laughs> she knew her fortune.
0: She probably did. Um, and so that was the ideology of Volterine Declare and, um...
1: That whole hardly deserved
0: parts. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. Hopefully yes. our listeners do too.
1: Oh yeah, for sure, for sure.
0: So, what did you bring us today? <clears throat> I need a refill. I swear
1: I'm, I didn't <laughs> even fill it up that much. That's the only reason why. Okay, so today I want to talk about... I don't know if you've heard of her or not. I, don't, I f- cannot remember how I came across her. But it doesn't matter. I read her story, and I was, like, in awe and in tears. And I was like, I fucking love this. And it's about Irina Sendler. 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 Okay. Um, so it's a lot, but there's a good reason for it. So Irina was born on February 15th in 1910 in Warsaw. So her she's got a great life, obviously, out of her in Thanks. Warsaw 1910. <laughs> um. Technically, she lived 15 miles southeast of Warsaw in a very vibrant Jewish community.
2: Okay.
1: Her father, Stanislav, was a physician, and he treated everybody in the area, whether they could afford it or not, you know,
2: mm-hmm. a
1: decent human being. Right, right.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> when Irina was seven, so now we're in 1917,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, her father died from typhus that he got from his patients, um, and after his death, the Jewish community actually came together and offered financial help for Her mom who was a widow and her the Mm -hmm. daughter Um, but according to sources the mother like declined their assistance but was like thankful for it um other than that not too much is known about her childhood so we're going to fast forward a few years it's 10 years later now we're in 1927 and Irina is at the university of warsaw where she studied law and then changed it to polish literature Mm um and this is when they started opposing some specific laws okay Uh, One of them being the ghetto benches. The
0: ghetto benches?
1: Yep. Um, What is that, you may ask? I Um, do ask that, yeah. It it was a form of official segregation in the seating with students of whether they were Jewish or not Jewish. So the Jewish had to sit, like, on the left side, and like, bad desk and stuff. And you had, like, these stamp cards to show if you were Jewish or not Jewish at a fucking university. (laughs) Yeah. and many of the Polish institutions had this in and in started using them in the 1930s. Okay. Um, but she's yeah. our hero. She's not Jewish. Uh-huh. Um, but she grew up in a very Jewish neighborhood yeah. and all this all stuff. Um, so she actually defaced her non-Jewish identification card on her grade report thing. Um, she... She also um, got disciplined academically because of her activities and reputation as a communist and a philo-Semite, you know, people who respected Jewish people. Right. Um, She also joined the Union of Polish Democrat Youth in 1928, and she became a member of the Polish Socialist Party. Nice. Um, she was repeatedly refused employment in the Warsaw school system. She tried to become a teacher, Mm -hmm. um, because of negative recommendations issued by the university, which ascribed her radically leftist (laughs)
2: views.
0: (laughs) It sounds familiar.
1: I remember reading her, so I'm like, oh, Andrew's going to
2: love
0: her. (laughs) And I love her. I do love her so far. Um,
1: she did eventually get a job, so don't worry about that. She was employed in a legal counseling and social help clinic, um, it called the Section for Mother and Child Assistance at the Citizen Committee for Helping the Unemployed. So say that, like, ten times. I'm not gonna try that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, they're like, it's so long, there's not even, like, an acronym you can use for that. <laughs> um, she worked mostly in the field, crisscrossing Warsaw's impoverished neighborhoods, and her clients were usually helpless, socially disadvantaged women, mm-hmm. um, as most are if you're in the Section and Child Assistance Citizen Committee, or community, yeah, committee. Um... So, in 1935, the government abolished this section, and then it just became what most places are now, like the Department of Social Welfare Welfare and Public Health. Okay. Um,
0: So, she was like a social worker?
1: Yeah, yeah, basically. No, that's exactly what she was. Yeah. Um, So, soon after the German invasion of Poland, Mm -hmm. um, on November 1st, 1939, the German occupier authorities ordered Jews removed from, you know be removed off of the social welfare programs um, and barred the department from providing any assistance to Warsaw's Jewish citizens. Do you think she did that? No. No. (laughs) Of course she didn't. (laughs) Irina with her colleagues and activists from the Polish um, Socialist Party Mm -hmm. became involved in helping the wounded and sick Polish soldiers Um, on one of her initiatives, her party began generating false medical documents needed by the soldiers and poor families to obtain aid. Um, so she extended all assistance to all her Jewish, all the Jewish people in the neighborhood and the area. Nice. Um, so yeah. Uh, shoot. I'm going to make (laughs) up this number because I crossed off. There's five zeros. I think it was... 300,000.
2: 300,000. Um,
1: 300,000 Jews were crowded into a small portion of the city uh-huh. of the, like, the Warsaw Ghetto. And, um, the Nazis sealed the area in 1940, because it used to be, like, way back in the day, it was, like, a destiny area, but they could come and go, but then eventually, like, you know, they closed it off, and they couldn't leave the area. Right. So, they finally sealed it off in 1940, so no one could come and go, and we all know where they, well, if they do leave, you know exactly where they were going. Right. Um... So, as employees of the Social Welfare and Public Health Department, Irina and a colleague, this lady named Schultz, I have her last name, gained access to special permits for entering the ghetto to check for signs of typhus, a disease the Germans feared would spread beyond the ghetto. Right. So, under the under the pretext of conducting sanitary inspections, they brought medications and hygiene items and sneaked clothing, food, and other necessities into the ghetto.
0: That is badass. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, just wait. <laughs> She's like my fucking
2: hero.
1: Um... <laughs> side note, if it's not already obvious, this work was done at a huge risk since October of 1941 giving any kind of assistance to Jews in German-occupied Poland was punishable by death. And, um, not just for the person who was providing the help, but for their entire family if they were caught.
2: Damn.
1: Yeah. Poland was the only country in German-occupied Europe in which a death penalty like that applied. Right. Um, so, a little more, she joined the Polish Socialist Party, became known as the Polish Socialist Workers' Party. I don't know why I wrote that. I don't really know if that makes a, a big... That doesn't really come back. It's just basically saying, like, she's still very active.
0: Right. Um, just the party changed.
1: Just the party name changed, yeah. And then, in August of 1943, Irina was nominated by... Have you ever heard of um, Zagoda? It's um, a council to aid Jews. That's what it literally was... a. Or I think that's the English translation.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, to head its children's section. Nice. So you know, um, Z- Zagoda was an underground organization that organized in September of 1942. So this is well into World War II. Yeah. Um, uh, founded by a guy's name I cannot pronounce, so I won't even try. Um, but he was a resistance fighter and writer, and he's the guy who like organized the Zagoda. Show it to me. Um, that. Zofia Kosak
0: Shuka Shuka. I would guess
1: there are two z's a k two c's and it's
0: s (laughs) Zofia Kosak Shuka is what I would guess
1: um so he was a resistance fighter and a rider I should have looked him up but I haven't maybe he'll be for another time
0: yeah
1: um so now um Irina was the function as the leader and coordinator of the network which just distributed resource resources including money grants to help get people out of the ghetto uh, this is what's so amazing <laughs> so so basically what they did was they would get these children and sneak them out of the ghetto mm-hmm. and these children were placed with Polish families and Catholic orphanages
2: yeah.
1: um, and they knew these people knew what they were doing this Catholic orphanage knew what they were doing too so she Worked closely with a group of about 30 volunteers, mostly women, and the children were often given Christian names and taught Christian prayers in case they were tested, because they would do that. They would like come up to people if they thought they you know looked Jewish. Right. Um, and then test them to see if they were really Jewish or not. Um, Irina wanted... This is what I love so much. Irina wanted to preserve the children's Jewish identities, so she kept careful documentation listing their Christian names, given names, and current locations. So she would write it two times... Their actual names, their family, mm. their Christian name, and put it in a little glass bottle that she would um, dig under a tree. And she didn't tell anyone where they were.
2: Nice.
1: She just, um, I think I'll get to it, but I'll say it now in case it's not in here. But basically, oh yeah, I will get to it, so okay. pause um, <laughs> on that. Um, so according to uh, this American historian, Deborah Dork um Irene was the inspiration and the prime mover for the whole network that saved jewish children she and her co-workers buried list of oh yeah here i just said um the aim was to return the children to their original families mm-hmm. after the war was over that's right. the whole reason they kept the bottles
2: right
1: hidden in the jar so that they could remember because no one knew how long the war would actually last yeah um so are you ready for this
2: i'm ready
1: In October 1943, Irina was arrested by the Gestapo. Oh, no. Um, As they ransacked her house, Irina tossed the list of children to her friend who hid the list in their loose clothing. Um, If the Gestapo had access to this information, all the children would be compromised, but her friend was never searched. Nice. Um, But the Gestapo obviously got her and beat Irina brutally upon her arrest and interrogated her and tortured her. And despite this, she refused to betray any of her comrades or the children they rescued and was sentenced to death by firing squad. <sighs> All right. So now it's like four months later, February 1944, she um, was on her way to the execution.
0: Yeah.
1: And Zagoda literally came by and bribed the guards on her way nice. to let her go and they and she like got saved yes. basically isn't that so crazy?
0: Rescue mission? <laughs> yes.
1: Bribed the guards on the way of the execution and so then they let her go like oh my gosh <laughs> she, uh. on the following day the Germans loudly procre- proclaimed her execution posters were put up all over the city with the news that she was shot Irina read the posters herself. <laughs> Can you believe that? Oh. So after her escape from death, literally by almost a fucking firing squad, <laughs> um, she hid from the Germans because it's not like they didn't know what she looked like at this right, point. Right. Um, but were put returned to Warsaw under a fake name and continued her involvement with Zagoda. Nice. Um, during the Warsaw Uprising, Irina worked as a nurse in a public hospital where she hit five Jews, and she continued to work as a nurse until the Germans left Warsaw, retreating before advancing, before the advancing Soviet troops.
0: So in my Netflix series, (laughs) I'm imagining this is like the season three opener, is Mm -hmm. that she's, uh pretending to be somebody else working in a hospital. Yes, this and is season like,
1: three opener. I
0: can't, I can't like hide people anymore. And then she sees these poor Jewish people. She's like, like nope, like, got to. And then just cut to her hiding. Yeah. Hospital.
1: Um. So after the war, Irina and her co-workers gathered all of the records with the names and locations of the Hindu's children and gave them to Zagoda to be returned to their family. And it's fucking sad because as we all know, almost all the children's parents had been killed at treblinka extermination camp or had gone missing which means they were fucking assassinated at the treblinka yeah. term- extermination camp um oh, quick thing um they don't really go much into her life afterwards um sh- uh, she continued doing what she's doing but i'll go i have a bit more to say though okay. uh, she passed away in may of 2008 at the age of 98 um She received many awards throughout her life, but I will get to that in a minute. So here's a little extra stuff I just want to talk about. Cool. Um, The most depressing thing is I'll talk to you a little bit about the Treblinka extermination camp. Are you Mm. familiar with?
2: A little bit. Yeah.
1: Um, It was located um, northeast of Warsaw, just um, 2.5 miles south of the Treblinka train station.
2: Yeah.
1: The camp operated between July 23, 1942... In October 19th, uh, 1943, as a part of Operation Reinhardt, you know, the daily part of the final solution, yeah. they were open, um, like, for other longer periods, but there are also, like, different, um, like, numbers to it, but I, I'm not going to go too much into it. All I want to say is during this time, during this fucking, like, uh, like, year and a half period, it's estimated that 700,000 and 900,000 Jews were killed in its gas t- chambers along with 2,000 Romani people. More Jews were killed at Treblinka than any other Nazi extermination camp, apart from Auschwitz. Obviously, right. is the number two.
2: Um,
1: <clears throat> so basically, a little more detail. She noted the names of the children on cigarette papers twice for security and sealed them in the in two glass bottles okay. in case they were discovered. In cool. case one was discovered, there'd be another one. Which she buried in a garden.
0: Okay.
1: Um, not her garden, a friend's garden.
0: <laughs> well, I would hope she didn't yes. That, do Yes. Um,
1: she is said to have helped rescued. Two thousand five hundred Jewish children in Poland. Damn. Two
0: thousand five hundred. Where's her movie, Spielberg?
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> well, here's the
1: thing. Um, well, actually, I will get to that right after this. So, okay. here's the fun. <laughs> Fun's a really shitty way to say this.
0: The fun part. Here
1: are the five ways that she were a- she was able to have children escape from the ghetto. Yeah. Um, her five main methods. Uh, she used an ambulance. Using an ambulance, a child could be taken out, hidden under the stretcher without them being noticed. Escaped through the courthouse. There's this weird courthouse right by the ghetto. And I tried reading it, and I couldn't quite understand that. I needed to, like, see, like, a video image of how it's done. But basically, they get through this one side of the courtroom. They can Mm -hmm. sneak through a passageway and get out on the other side of the building. And basically, um, it was, like, not German-occupied, and you were, like, they were... They wouldn't be captured. Okay. It's, uh, that's how I kind of took it. Like, basically, if you were able to sneak in this courthouse, and you got out on the other side, you were no longer in the ghetto, and then you also, like, were in, like, a weird, safe territory. I'm not explaining it quite right well, but...
0: It was, like, a demilitarized or something? Yes, yeah.
1: yes. Um, so, was, that was, like, a, one of their main meeting points for, like, getting these children out. Um... A third way uh, way they did it was a child could be taken out using the sewer pipes or other secret underground passages, so they took advantage of sewers. Um, And then a trolley could carry out children hiding in a sack in a trunk in a suitcase or something similar, especially if they were a lot smaller and they wouldn't be in there for too long. And then um, if a child could pretend to be sick or was actually very ill, it could be legally it, they could be legally removed (laughs) from you. Uh, from actually going in the ambulance okay. but then I thought well, would they be very like picky on like well this child needs to be back here or right. would they they could just say the child passed away who knows
0: that's what I was thinking um, oh the child died I'm, so, I'm very yeah, sorry yeah. he's fine he's fine don't worry yeah
1: yeah it. so here's the whole thing she was not known like mm. people in her own country didn't know her And the whole reason she even got famous was, like, the last 15 or so years of her life because there's this small high school in Kansas in the 1990s where they did this thing. It's, like, they did this big project on, like, heroes and whatever, and this group of girls went up to the—I want to say he was the principal or at least the director of something—and... They're, they're like well you can do someone on uh, who helped ch- people the holocaust I don't know if he said those exact words but he's like watch this video it's like yeah. gave little blips and all these people and in this blip is like Irene Adler saved 2,500 children and, sh- and one Irene of the- similar
0: <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Irene Adler was the villain uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Sherlock. Sherlock Holmes god. <laughs> well
1: she's more badass than like, Adler, like, Irene Adler Irene Simler yes um yeah, uh, two thousand five hundred children, and one of the girls watching it, who was in high school at the time, was like, um, "I must have misheard that. Why is this person saved this many children? I've never heard of her, mm-hmm. but Schindler's List is out here. Not saying that his contribution was not helpful at all right, either. Right. Like we're not comparing, please." Right. Um, and so they're like, "Is this for real? Is this for real?" So basically, they wrote her a letter
2: mm-hmm.
1: in Warsaw and like gave her money to like send the postage back. She wrote back. And then gave her a receipt on the money they gave her. She like it was to like help children in Warsaw, of course, because like <laughs> that's her. And basically, this long story short, they wrote a store, uh, store. They wrote a play called um, "Life in a Jar," and it had to do with her having to see children writing their names down and stuff. That's so awesome. and then it got like huge recognition. Yeah. Like this little small town. And then they went to go visit her. And then all of a sudden, in 2007 and 2008, she was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize twice. Um, and, then she's, and then all of a sudden she got kind of famous. Like, you know, people were recognizing her and things yeah. like that. And, so but awesome. she was in a nursing home this time yeah. and she was like, oh, whatever. But one of the things I'll end on, and <laughs> it makes me cry every time I think about it. I'll try not to cry. But one of the things is, like, she was talking to the high schoolers at the time. And she goes, yeah, well, I still have nightmares from the time. And before she was, anything I'm like, yeah, because she's like doing all this scary stuff. Yeah. But no, the reason she has nightmares is because she's like, did I do enough? Could I have Aww. done more? And I was like, shut up. <laughs> Could you not? Um, but this woman, um, and then these high school girls like kept in touch for the ne- next decade and like went over and, and got to see her like a week before she died. And they were like just celebrating her life. And it was just, I don't know. Oh. It's amazing. <laughs> Um and that is Motherfucking Irina Sandler.
0: That's so great. <laughs> that was awesome.
1: I thought like her story is like I'm like, and, I mean, there were so many heroes, but I just loved it. Yeah. Yeah, and she didn't care like that no one recognized her for that cuz she's like, no, I'm a, this is what a human being should do. So she's yeah. just like
0: That was awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for that.
1: Yes, I really enjoyed that one. <laughs> I enjoyed like looking it up and
0: Oh. So, listeners, you got two badasses this week. Yeah, <laughs> um, I want to. I want to see those Netflix series. <laughs> I want to see those Netflix. Yeah. I'll start writing it if I have to. Damn it! <laughs> um, All
1: right, sorry. Yeah. It gets me a little emotional.
0: Um, yeah. Is there anything else?
1: No, not right now. Not after that. Um, <laughs>
0: Well, listeners, we'll let you go. Um, as always, buy my books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got two up on the website. Go visit the website. It's absintheactivismarts.wordpress.com. Um, if you give us money, we might uh, update to a Squarespace or uh, some other type of actual website. <laughs> just a, a WordPress blog. Um, one day, maybe. One day, maybe. Um We've got uh, my books, some short stories, um, Katie's artwork, Chet Osmond's music. Um, check out the Friends and Comrades section, because we've got a oh,
2: yeah.
0: a lot of friends here in Louisville. Um <laughs> who could so use popular. Your, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, as always, uh, check out the website, buy my books, Katie's artwork, uh, all of that stuff. Um, is there anything you want to plug this week?
1: No, I'm no. good. Cool. You you do all my plugs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, check out the Facebook page. Check out the um, oh, what is it? The Patreon Patreon page. Um, check out the website. All of that good stuff. Yeah. We'll see you ne- next week. Yes.